This business seems to have it all. So I'm going to make you an offer. I'm going to offer you all of the money. So I'd like to offer you all of the money. Oh. <laughs> I hope that's good, Tears. Oh. <laughs> it was the, probably the most stressful thing that I've ever gone through in my life. It will genuinely be a roller coaster, but you will have the highest highs and you will have the lowest lows. I managed to almost kill myself skiing, which was interesting. And a lot of businesses that you hear about who are scaling overnight and you know they're out there on Instagram or LinkedIn, it's all glossy and they've got massive warehouses and enormous teams and it all makes it look very easy, but they've raised millions to do that. I mean, my children are gonna be here in, into the 2100s. Right? So you're starting to think, God, what are we leaving for them? It would be an understatement to say that my next guest is the reason for starting this podcast. I am genuinely so, so, so excited to interview Charlotte Morley, the founder and CEO of The Little Loop, which is the UK's first children's wear rental subscription platform. Now, my goodness, the stories that we're going to get into, this is a very selfish episode for me because I get to ask her the questions that... I hope you'll enjoy as well. She's made history on Dragon's Den. She's won tons of awards. She's had all of these amazing successes, but my goodness, has she been through some setbacks as well. So without further ado, Charlotte, welcome to Strategy and Tragedy. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. So I'm so excited to get stuck into all of your story, Dragon's Den, The Little Loop, you're doing amazing things, but let's rewind the clock a little bit. So you used to be a geography teacher, is that correct? Yep. <laughs> For your sins. I've been many things. <laughs> I've worn many hats. Many things. <laughs> so it was this secondary school? Yeah, it was a brief kind of career. It wasn't even a break, but it was a pivot into a career that didn't quite work out, which I quickly pivoted back out of. But yes, a secondary geography teacher. Wow, so how long was that for? Three years. Okay, long like, enough. The, yeah, long enough, yes. Long enough. <laughs> yes, it was. It was absolutely long enough. Uh, no, actually, I, I really enjoyed it, but it just wasn't right for me. I think you know when you're not doing the thing that you're able to bring your best at, bring your A-game at. I, I found it incredibly stressful. I think teachers are heroes. It's a really, really tough career. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I just wasn't being my best self, so I moved out of it. <laughs> Amazing. So obvious question, do you think entrepreneurship is where you're being your best self? Yeah, I think so. I do. I think I'm a bit kind of all over the place and that's, you need to be like that to be an entrepreneur. I think being, being an entrepreneur is a place where actually someone who is a little bit in everything can really thrive and shine where actually in a more conventional career you can feel quite hemmed in and claustrophobic and maybe be a bit too scatty and a bit too all over the place so yeah I, I do actually I, totally um, that. I, I mean the stress <laughs> the stress of it sometimes is a bit like what am I doing <laughs> but I know that I can bring all of my strengths to bear every single day, which is really rewarding. Amazing. It feels good, doesn't it? Mm. You can feel that inner satisfaction when you know that you're doing what you should be doing. But on the geography teaching thing for just a second, do you think that, I mean, that sounds like the best possible training ground for going into something as wild as entrepreneurship, <laughs> having to corral a load of yeah. teenagers in a classroom. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is. It's an incredibly tough job. You've got to, you've got to be respected. You don't have to be liked, <laughs> but you have to be respe respected because you do a good thing, because you look out for people, because you're thinking, you know, you're constantly thinking, responding to lots of different needs, lots of different inputs um it's an incredibly tough job um is it good training for entrepreneurship i think <laughs> entrepreneurship's easier i do well. because you most of the time it's you and you've only really got yourself to answer to right. until you get investment that's a different story mm. um 
whereas in a classroom you're there in front of people every single day and they are judgmental i mean teenagers <laughs> are the hardest people to impress um so yeah i suppose it was it was good training in some ways um and so you mentioned yeah. you wear many hats was one of those riding a helicopter into Afghanistan? Iraq. <laughs> into Iraq, yeah. sorry. So sorry, I started my, my career straight out of university. I went into intelligence and worked for 10 years, actually, for the Ministry of Defence. Wow. Um, so that was my real, like, that's my real pre-career. Teaching was like a little side thing, I suppose. But yeah, my real pre-career before entrepreneurship was, um, was working in intelligence, which also, I suppose, good training, lots of juggling, lots of you know, taking leads from lots of different inputs and deciding what to do with it. Project management effectively, which is basically what being an entrepreneur is or being a founder is. Um, and yes, I did fly into Iraq <laughs> in the back of a Hercules. Um, what was that about? Why did you have to fly into Iraq? And- it was shortly after the Iraq war and we were investigating threats to the UK emanating from within Iraq. So we were out there um, kind of getting the latest information, if you like. Um, My goodness. Yeah. So it's were great. you a Bond fan growing up or something? Like were you uh, looking up to not really. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, for, who's not a Bond fan? <laughs> but that's not why I did it. Um, I don't know. I, it, again, it was, a, it was a job that really played to my strengths. I'm really good at finding things out, working quite good at kind of, I've got good common sense and I'm good at working things out and taking lots of inputs and deciding what to do with them. Um, and yeah, it was an amazing 10 years. I've just had, had the best time. And I mean, things like flying into Iraq were only tiny little snapshots. It was like a two week trip out of a 10 year career, but in a way they make it sure. shine in your, in your memory. And the, the memories that I got from that, some of the things that I did were just, yeah, amazing life defining moments. Wow, yeah. such a unique backstory so what led you into entrepreneurship what gave you the idea for the little loop um so after teaching i went into for me a big step into the private sector you know i've been public sector my entire career so that was kind of i think i was about 14 years in then but i married a guy who worked in tech and i'd also just become aware of google and all these amazing tech companies that were really changing the way we did things and started to see how actually whilst the public sector is fantastic and we need it and you know we do need it to run our everyday lives and without it we'd all be stuffed it wasn't dynamic and it wasn't really changing the bar, it was shifting the bar, I should say. It wasn't changing the way we do things. And I got very excited about this concept of using technology, using new ways of doing things to change the way that we all behave and therefore ultimately to improve the, the everything systemic. Um, so I'd gone to work for an ed tech company. So out of teaching, I went into ed tech. I, I learned on the job as a product manager, became a digital product person. I then shifted, I had a child, came back from maternity to not on the high street. And so I think I'd kind of seen tech, I'd seen retail, and neither of those were quite right for me. The ed tech company was doing great things, but I wasn't passionate about education technology. Not on the high street was very innovative in its time, but I didn't feel that we were doing anything particularly revolutionary anymore. Um, And I wanted to do something in sustainability that had been my passion from before my degree I was a geographer I was an environmentalist from Mm. being tiny so all of those bits pieced together I was like I can do something here I want to build something tech Mm. and I want to build something in consumer tech that helps us to change our habits and the way we do things Mm. and that's where that was the genesis of it wow amazing and as much as you've always been passionate about the environment sustainability I can imagine that the birth of your first one shifted your view on that as well right yeah completely I think having a child shifts your views on 
loads of things and I think mostly just because you get the chance to step back and reassess and it is a real privilege as much as maternity leave can be stressful and tiring and you're learning a whole new thing it's a real privilege to have the mental space actually or at least I found this to be able to reevaluate things and you've got this tiny human and you're thinking then beyond the end of your lifetime to the end of their lifetime and my children are going to be here and in, into the 2100s mm. right? and so you're starting to think God, what are we leaving for them? Um, and you're doing lots of new things. You're starting lots of new habits. They need nappies, they need clothes. You do all sorts of things with them that you've never done before in your life. And it's a chance to do things new. They, they say that it, kind of consumers only ever change their habits when something massive happens in their lives. Moving house, leaving university, starting a new job, having a child. Because you're reassessing so much of your life that it's actually quite an easy time to start new things. And so I started using cloth nappies. Um, I was at home a lot. I was trying to cook from scratch. I was trying to use as few disposable things as I possibly could in having this child because I suddenly wanted to, you know, do things better. Mm, amazing. And do you mind me asking then, so when you came up with the idea, so you were at, not on the high street, mum of one at this point, did you have savings before launching into your own company? Did you get external investment to begin with? Like, on a practical level, like... How were you able to go off and set up your own tech company? Yeah, and it's really key actually, Steph, because I think it's incredibly hard to set up a tech company without some injection of cash because actually tech is expensive to build, right? So um, there are people who set up, actually there are people in my space who have built children's rental clothing businesses on Shopify with you know minimal f injection of, of funds, but they're not doing it in a particularly revolutionary way. And I think the way I wanted to do it was always to build the tech to make sure it worked as optimally as it could. So yes, absolutely, I had to put in, um, money into it. So I had some pay from um, not on the high street, there was a whole thing there um, where they couldn't give me a job when I came back from maternity leave because they'd restructured. Um, and I did have a flat that I had bought when I was young. I, you know, in my early 20s, I was lucky. I am of that generation just where property was slightly cheaper when I moved to London, slightly, not a lot. You didn't squander it on avocados um, on toast. But I didn't. So. I was saving from the age of 21. I was, I was saving every spare bit of cash that I ever had because my parents had taught me that property was the way to, that you had to put your money into property as soon as you could. Um, so I'd bought my first flat with, a, with my first boyfriend. We'd both put everything we had into it. And I had then kind of, I was renting it out and so I remortgaged it. So yeah, the little loop is built on the remortgage of a flat, which I'm fortunate to have, but, but also put a lot of effort into getting. Sure. Um, and a little bit of money from not on the high street. Mm. And yeah, that was it. So mm. without that, I would have been able to do it, but I'd have done it very differently and I wouldn't be where we are today. Mm. Certainly wouldn't have the novelty, novelty is the wrong word because it makes it sound trivial, but the innovation is the word I'm looking for that we've injected into our model, the way we partner with brands and, and the way that we um, build our consumer experience. Amazing. So I feel like we're edging towards one of the first catastrophes. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> okay, so listeners, I mean... I have known, I've had the privilege of knowing Charlotte for a while now. At a distance, I've seen the highs and the lows. And my goodness, the lows, they take the wind out of my stomach. So I don't know how, how you're still here and still standing. So big kudos to you for that, for sure. So one of the first things I'm coming on to is, did you start the Little Loop with a co-founder or did you start it on your own and then try to bring in the co-founder? <laughs> yeah, no, I started it on my own. Um, I 
knew from various, you know, just reading and inputs and looking at other companies that you can start with a co-founder if you've got the right person, but it's like a marriage. You're not going to marry the wrong person just for the sake of it. So I didn't feel that I needed a co-founder to begin with. Um, I had some great people who collaborated with me in the early days. So it was all fine, but I think about a year in, I just started to feel, you know, things hadn't taken off as rapidly as, you know, the, the books lead you to believe. They never and do. You, when you're on your own, you get these crises of confidence because there's no one really to input. You know, my husband's great and he was like, you're doing great. But I didn't feel like, I thought he would do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you just need that sounding board and you feel like you want a third party or an, another perspective and someone to bounce things off and also someone to share the burden. The biggest disadvantage of being a, a solo founder is it's 50% of the hours that you've got in the week to put into the business. Um, so, and I was always networking and meeting people and I did meet somebody who I thought could potentially bring some of the things that I didn't have to the pot. So I did try to bring on a co-founder. Um, it didn't really work out and I can't really go into a lot of detail for that person's sake and, you know, to protect their privacy. But ultimately the person tried to take advantage of the situation and um, it was the, probably the most stressful thing that I've ever gone through in my life because wow. it's so personal and because you take this, these people, you t I took a person into my confidence and I trusted them with a business which is basically my third baby, but which has got money in it. You know, my personal savings and I put at this point, I think by the time the, the person was looking to come on, I think I'd put a, over a year and a half of my time into the business, all of my inspiration and innovation and energies and a load of and all my savings and then this the, they just kept taking advantage and at every step there was like I want more I want more I want more and you owe this to me it's like you know and and the kind of emotional blackmail that went along with that um you know you need to trust me you need to give me more well you start to believe it you think you're going crazy and then it all started, it was very obvious that this was not going to work out, so I kind of severed ties before actually I went on Dragon's Den. But, yeah, it was a very difficult period. I reacted so strongly to your statement there about it being one of the most difficult, stressful situations you've been through because, again, at kind of arm's distance, at arm's length, I'm aware <laughs> of some of the bad things that you've gone through, some of the nightmares. So to hear that this was one of the worst, if not the worst, mm. is, is really interesting because I guess, as you said, so much more emotional. It is like a marriage, except you have got money and everything else in the mix. So it, um, I can empathize with how kind of emotionally stressful that sounds. You feel foolish as well, I think, because I, I didn't need them. And... I'd convinced myself I did need that person because I'd lost confidence. And that was the only reason mm. I didn't. And, 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 you know, just to be very clear, they didn't, it wasn't that I'd severed ties after they'd put a huge amount of effort into the business. I think they did about 20 days in total of, of work and, and it wasn't that, you know, and this wasn't their fault that, you know, they were working part time. There wasn't much time to bring, but they hadn't put a huge amount of themselves into the business, whereas I obviously had. And it, it was evident from that that I didn't need them. Mm. Um, and so I just felt foolish that I'd actually let myself get into that position without putting stronger safeguards in place mm. to protect me and to protect the business. But it sounds like an unforgettable lesson learned mm. anyway. So you're obviously much better off for it. For anyone um, listening that may be thinking about trying to find a co-founder, I think the whole solo founder versus co-founder thing is a really interesting 
topic within mm -hmm. the startup sort of ecosystem. So, um, so number one is, you know, don't just, you know, get married for, to someone for the sake of it, you know, find the right person. Looking back now, hindsight is a wonderful thing. What were some of the red flags that you perhaps ignored in those early stages that maybe other people could look out for if they're having yeah. co-founder chats? And yeah, and I think you're, you're right, because it's really key to say, actually, if you can find the right co-founder, I think it is a really positive thing to do. I've seen some amazing businesses with co-founders who clearly work very well together and it can bring a huge amount. So I'm definitely not saying don't do it. But yeah, red flags wise, I think somebody want, has to want to do what you, you know, I think as a, co as a founder of a business, I have been prepared to put everything into it. Every day I work all the hours and you don't mind because it's your baby and because you're desperate for it to succeed. And I think it's really hard to bring someone in later. That's the first thing. So it's not necessarily a red flag about the person, but bringing someone in later um, because they don't have that same dedication. They've not been there from the beginning and it's really, they can be an incredible employee and they can be an employee with share options, but to make them a co-founder, it's a hard thing to do because you'll always feel, but yeah, hang on a second, you weren't there and, and they're not going to do what you did. And I think one of the earliest red flags was, you know, I was doing all our own laundry. I was doing all the order packing, et cetera, and this person never wanted to do it. And what they would say was, oh, it's not a good use of my time. I'm only here one day a week. So you don't want me to do that. Let, get me doing something else. But actually, someone who wants to be a co-founder of the business should have been like, let me do all those things. I want to know what this is like from the inside out. I want to do all the things that you've done so that I feel as much as much a part of this as you do. Um, so that like so that kind of sense of I'm better than you almost was coming through. And I didn't hear it. I let myself think, oh yeah, that's logical, you know, why why would they want to spend some of their few hours a week doing the, the menial jobs? But those menial jobs are, I still get in the warehouse today. I still pack orders and, and work with a team, not that they probably want me to be <laughs> bless them. Um, but it's so important. It's such a core part of who the who we are and what the business is. So that was a big red flag. Mm. I mean, I'd say generally speaking, watch how people are with the people around them. Look at how they treat their partner, look at how they treat other people that work for them, work, work with them, do the checks. Like this person said, oh yeah, you can get my reference from this person, that person and the other. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I just never got around to it because as a co-founder, as a founder, you're always, you've always got like 200 times what you need to be doing to do. Mm. And um, I just didn't do the checks and I, and I really should have done the checks. I mean, I would challenge you on that one. I think that, you know, you're potentially beating yourself up a bit too much about that because I wonder whether you know if you trust somebody gut instinct is right all the right yeah it's like like legitimately how many people are really going going to do that it's only when you've had your fingers burn you then go through the references and all the rest of it but I think because of how it worked out it's easier then to say okay could have done this could have done that yeah but. you're right I mean you can always hindsight is 2020 vision mm. um and I don't actually to be honest to this day I don't I rarely think about the person now, two years later, but at the time when it was jeopardizing a potential investment, when I was so stressed, I was a horrible person to be around and I moved house. I mean, we were moving and we'd always had it in our minds to move, but it got to the point where I couldn't live where I was living because that person lived near to me and I would go past their house and every time I went past their house, I felt sick because it, I just felt so violated by how they'd been and how they treated me. So, you know, I think wow. it, 
it was it was not a good experience and I think I did feel responsible for having done that to myself and to my family because they were the ones that had to support me through it and ultimately it, it came out you know it all came out in the wash and it not with with less lost than could have potentially been lost yeah. but it was an it was a year I would say and maybe nine months of 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 real pain. Wow, I'm yeah. so sorry to hear that, Charlotte. <laughs> well, but you're here, we got that big wound reopened and out of the yeah, way. Yeah, thanks for that. So, thank you. <laughs> so you mentioned Dragon's Den, which I'm obviously really excited to get stuck into. So interesting that you, you severed the ties with them around that time, so before going on the show. So what was interesting is another guest we have on the show went on as a team and talked about mm. how how much better it was to have their sidekick with them and because it's such a nerve-wracking experience. And of course, I thought of you and thought, well, I don't know how you do it anyway, just to begin with, let alone <laughs> going on Dragon's Den, the nerves and everything else going alone. But for you, it was, you were better off. You know, you'd rather not have them along with you for the ride. You were like, they need, they need to be out of the picture before this happens. I think getting that person out of the picture was more about the cleanliness of who, who are these investors going to invest in? What is the business that they're investing in? It's very important, you know, a, a business with co-founders is very different from a business without, right? So it wasn't, getting them out of the picture wasn't so much about me not wanting to be on Dragon's Den with somebody. And I'm sure that person would have been great on screen. You know, they were very presentable, very intelligent. Um, I think though, actually, you're right, it did go very well. And what I did really enjoy was how the conversation flowed and how I was able to react and respond and genuinely felt, I walked out of there thinking, I have just had an incredibly uplifting two hour and a half, two hours, because it felt like a conversation between interested, interesting people. And I think had there been two of us or more there it would have been less a conversation and more a performance I think and I don't think it would have flowed as well so as I say less about that person you know I'm not going to say anything negative about them in, in but more just I think being on your own in that situation mm. and also again like if you were co-founders who've been in it from the beginning I think again it would have been much more it would have flowed a lot more but I think there'd have been a lot of her thinking yeah, oh I don't know about that or I'm not sure about that because actually you know, that person hadn't had the time to put the energy in the, you know, and learn and know the business inside out like I did. Sure. Um, yeah. And that must be the world's biggest humble brag, by the way. What did you say? Oh, I did, did well on the show. She made history <laughs> on Dragon's Den, guys. If you haven't seen the clip, go and watch it. It's actually re-airing, which is really exciting. So you've got another chance to watch it. Um, so how did you tell us? How did you make history on Dragon's Den? What did you go and achieve? I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> She's going red. <laughs> I had this kind of crazy moment of, well, why don't I? So l let me go back a couple of steps. When you apply to Dragon's Den, they say, how much money do you want to raise? And I was like, you know, as much as I can. Um, and originally I was going out to raise 100,000. And literally like a week before they were like, do you think you could reduce how much you're asking for? because you're more likely to get investment if you ask for less. Now, this is why Dragon's Den, as, as much as I did enjoy it, and I'm glad I did it, is so alien. And it's really not a true reflection of an investment process because if you're going for investment, you're trying to raise an amount because you've got a budget that you need to spend in order to get your business to where you need to be. So them turning around and saying, you know, reduce your ask from 100 to 70,000, I was like, well, okay, I'll do it. Because at the time I wasn't sure I really wanted the money from them. Um, so I did it because it was like no skin off my nose, but actually I, I knew I needed more money. And if I got it all in one place, it saved me going out to try and find more investors. Um, so I got, 
very much against the odds and against my expectations, I got four offers. Um, I didn't expect to get any, genuinely didn't. That's not a humble brag. I genuinely did not think it would go as well as it did. And so I was like, I'm sitting here with these four people in front of me. I think they're all, well, at least three of them could have been fantastic investors. Why halve or split the investment? Because again, like really having an investor with less than 50 to 100,000 pounds in the game, they're not really gonna want to dedicate a lot of time to you, mm. right? It's not a lot of money for, for, for a lot, most angel investors or, or bigger investors. So splitting that pot between many investors doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I just asked them if they would both invest the full amount and double the money. <laughs> and I was, I was the kind of furiously thinking, is this against the rules? Because the rules say you've got to raise at least what you asked for. If you only get half the offer, you can't, you've failed. Okay. Um, so I was like, I don't know if I can do this, but can I? And they were like, uh, well, no one's ever asked that before. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. So, so as it happened, I doubled my money on Dragon's Den, which has never been done before. Oh, congratulations, <laughs> yeah. son. And not only you know, having offers from all four dragons, raising what you'd ask for more, you know, double, but getting the investment from Stephen Bartler and Deborah Meaden, like of the options as well. I mean, you couldn't wish for like, better people to have on your side right yeah they How are incredible. fantastic Amazing. and a good combination yeah. i think again like with investors an investment board or whether they're on your board or not you want a diversity and you want people who can bring a range of different things and and they balance each other up right? mm, so they are they point. are good I, I still do have a regret i love sarah davis I think she's amazing. And I do regret that I couldn't also bring her on. Yeah. I messaged her afterwards and was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I think she's just genuinely wonderful. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can't have it all. Yeah, yeah amazing. <laughs> so uh, we've come off a high off Dragon's Den. Is there another low around the corner <laughs> we've gone through? Lows, highs, lows. I know that you've recently had some trouble with moving house you were doing a pop-up recently that all, yeah, you know. I mean, I think, look, let's, I guess, just set it in the context of Someone said to me, someone who worked with me in the very early days, they said, just prepare yourself as a founder. And they consult, they work with lots of different founders. They were like, it will genuinely be a roller coaster. It sounds trite to say it, but you will have the highest highs and you will have the lowest lows. And at the time I was like, yeah, sure. Because when you start a business, you wouldn't start a business if you didn't think it would be on a trajectory of high, right? You just wouldn't do it. And it is the most accurate way of describing running a business as simple as it is. And I've never experienced a roller coaster in my life like it. Mm. You think it's all going upwards and then something happens and you're like, oh God, I didn't see that coming. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, so Dragon's Den was this incredible high. I mean, I remember weeping in the streets of Manchester on the phone to my husband because oh. I was so at, like, in shock yeah. about how well it had gone. Yeah. And then I was, then I had the co-founder issue actually arose. It actually became an issue after Dragon's Den because oh, okay. that's when they were like, I'm not letting go of this. This person's, you know, they've done really well on Dragon's Den. So that was the low immediately after that. And then, yeah, personally, we had some issues in that year um, following, I, I managed to almost kill myself skiing, which was interesting. Yeah, I forgot Broke about that my one. Arm. <laughs> like three weeks before Dragon's Den was due to air, yeah. I, I fell, hit my head, broke my arm. I was like rearranging a warehouse, like, well, basically stocking a warehouse because we'd never had a warehouse before oh. with a broken arm and I didn't even know it was broken. Oh <laughs> so, goodness. you know, and, and then Dragon's Den itself airing was both brilliant because we saw growth that we couldn't have, we just couldn't have got it with the, with the money we had, you know, with the money we had to invest in marketing, as you well know, because you were working with us on marketing at the time. Mm. Um, 
but it was exhausting. Mm. Um, suddenly we had the expectation of these investors because the investment didn't come through till pretty much then Dragon's Den. And it was like, well, actually it's not gone as well as it could have gone for various reasons. We didn't have everything quite right. We didn't have all the stock maybe we could have had, you know, because we were still a new business. Um, you know, we just hadn't brought in as many customers as we'd hoped for. So then there was a lot of scrutiny and there's a lot of stress. Um, and just the sheer, like, we weren't set up for customer services. We had aunties and friends and sisters and everybody in the, in the warehouse working all the hours God sent wow. to try and just get the orders out of the door because wow. we had enough that it was, you know. Mm. Um, and that's a tricky thing to balance as well, isn't it? The infrastructure for scale. Mm. I mean, especially these days. For overnight scale like that. Overnight, right? yeah. When you air on national television and yeah. I mean, I am biased, but I'm sure vast majority of the population loved you watching that and bought into the concept. Um, and, you know, balancing that with the practicalities of you hiring people yeah. and finding yeah, the right because, talent. You know, you've and... raised, like, we raised £140,000. It's peanuts, really, in investment, in business investment terms. You know, it's not a million, four million. A lot of businesses that you hear about who are scaling overnight and, you know, they're out there on Instagram or, or LinkedIn, it's all glossy and they've got massive warehouses and enormous teams and it all makes it look very easy. But they've raised millions to do that. And sure, you can scale very quickly if you've got the money, but we were trying to balance scaling quickly without having the upfront cash exactly. to invest in that. Yeah. So we couldn't scale our marketing budget. Mm. So although we brought in lots of people from Dragon's Den, we didn't then have a huge marketing budget to spend on keeping that going. Yeah. Um, we couldn't afford to hire out a big marketing team or even anyone. You know, I, I was still uploading all the stock. I was still picking orders, wow. all of, which is fun. And it's part of doing what you do. But also when you've been doing it for two years at this point, you're like, when will it ever get easier? Right. <laughs> so, so look, I mean, all that's to say, I still have loved every minute of it. And there have been those lows and it has been tough at times. But in running in the background is this feeling every day that I get to do what I love. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and actually, I think one of the advantages that you have over, over a lot of other entrepreneurs now is you've been running your business in more of that 2023 way and what I mean by that is now the whole VC landscape is completely shifted there's such a focus on lean efficiency profitability you've been doing that all along yeah you know you, yeah you we've, we've as close to bootstrapped as we possibly could right. all the way and actually you know the, the fundraising environment climate whatever you want to call it right now is hideous but it's easier for us to pull our heads in a little bit mm. and kind of keep going not indefinitely we still need to raise but we don't need to raise millions to support a team who you know mm. so you're right we are more resilient as a result and just more able to kind of switch to the demands of investors who are like yeah we don't want you spending all your money on a neon sign on the wall anymore like we, we've never done that right <laughs> You know, neon sign. I, it's, it's, to me, it's like the symbol of a of a business that spends its money on shit it doesn't need, <laughs> which is 
crazy because neon signs aren't that expensive. But do you know what I mean? It's just like in my head, did I need a neon sign? No, I needed to pay my staff, right? So, so funny, like our so warehouse true. is not very glamorous. Yeah. We don't have loads of shiny things. We have like basic tea in the kitchen. That, <laughs> but, it, but it means that we keep going and we do meet everyone's, you know, we have a lovely warm team atmosphere. Everyone clubs together. Everyone's in it, you know, everyone's, Amazing. everyone knows what part they play. We're all as lean and we're all kind of driving forward yeah. and that's brilliant. And you prove the research correct in terms of female founders being a better bet in air quotes. Um, so in terms of VC investors, there's a completely different style. There's a way of managing things kind of more leanly, more efficiently, looking at the runway, as opposed to more of that kind of aggressive, fuck it, splash out yeah. on the neon yeah. signs. Yeah. I do wonder though where, the, it's still the minority. So I wonder whether the female founders who have secured investment at a certain level if the number's just kind of so small and they're just so they're so good they're so determined and they tick all the boxes they're so talented and smart that they would be bucking the trend anyway mm, so yeah maybe and I think you know the other thing we've got against us I suppose and I, I don't want this to sound like I'm complaining because it's not that at all but what we're building is so different from what went before and we're not the only people in the space doing it but we are one of the leading businesses doing it and we're trying to scale earlier and quicker than other businesses in the space um and the market's still not quite there mm. and i think when i launched the business i was there mm. and other people i was talking to were there so we thought it would scale a lot quicker than it has done and actually you know very logically like you saw you see on dragon's den like stephen butler goes well this it just makes sense right and and People who didn't have kids at the time, everyone's like, well, this is really logical. But when it gets to the emotion of it, are parents ready to let go of owning their clothes? Well, yes, they're getting there, but that market is coming mm. and it's not already there. Mm. So we need to be able to stretch our runway out. Mm. We, if we had been, a, if we had kind of been all like, let's, you know, tits and teeth, let's raise a million and let's blow it all on marketing we'd have burned out mm. because we needed to wait for the market to come. And it's, it's, we're seeing, we actually started to see this, like the last, I, I was literally texting my team this, or slacking my team this morning going, where have these customers come from? Because we're not spending anything on marketing in that area right now. And I, we're like, have we finally got that mythical organic growth? Like, oh my God, <laughs> like, it feels like it's getting there. And none of us can believe it. I mean, maybe it's not, right? Maybe there's been some article that we didn't know about go out or something, but. It's it was been you a long time. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time coming and we've had to keep going while we waited for that. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember you saying one of the hardest things to distinguish when you're building such an innovative tech business is um, is whether the market actually wants, is there mm. market demand versus are we just too early and we need to stick around for long enough? Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And I think, you know, there's lots, of the, the, one of the biggest challenges, and this is, this is a challenge for any business, not just an innovative business, is that someone sees you ostensibly doing well, like seeming to do well on the and they go, I can do that. And then you get 10 challenger businesses coming behind you. And some of them are great, some of them are not so great, but all of them are riding on your coattails and they're all just diluting your market a little bit. And some of them will last and some of them will do very well and others will disappear, but all the time they're still there, they're just like, stopping you getting the full like and mm. I, that's just the way the world works right and I think you know my husband said to me the other week it was like 
that what's happening in the market right now is actually needed. It's a cleanse. It will shake mm, out mm. a lot of the bad businesses, the ones who aren't really ever going to last, but are just kind of stealing market share from others. Mm. Um, and, and it's really sad for them. And, you know, that's that's tough. But if they're not cut out for it, it's better that they go quicker mm, mm. Um, for them and, and for everyone else. And, and, mm. and you know, in an in economic up kind of cycle, they'll last longer, yeah, right? Yeah. Because there's more money and more, whereas right now it's about who can hang the hell on <laughs> and, you know, and the better you are, the more likely you yeah. are to do that, assuming you're managing your money well. Right. But it, there'll be great businesses that drop out right now as well because it's just bad timing for them in terms of their fundraising cycle. And It's a real test, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, that holding on for dear life, it brings to mind the crypto term. I don't know if you've heard of it, HODL. It's literally a crypto where you're just, you're holding on. Is that what it is? <laughs> it's a crypto, I didn't know it was a crypto term, but yeah. yeah. You're so ahead of the curve as always. Uh, yeah. So... <laughs> On market validation, what are the early signs that on a, on a practical level that you were able to point to, maybe more so in the earlier days with the little loop to know that, no, it is actually worth going. It is the mar it's just a case of, you know, the market having to catch up. What, what were some of the market validation points that helped you? I mean, we're a marketplace, so we have two markets. We have our brands and we have our customers and the brand validation from day one has been strong so our brands felt like they wanted this and I mean in fairness to our brands they took a big leap of faith because we were saying we're not going to buy stock from you um, you're going to give it to us and we'll pay you when when it rents <laughs> and I, I mean unbelievably some fantastic brands are like sure we'll give that a shot which to me was massive market validation from that side of things that they really felt they needed something circular and um one of our biggest brand or our biggest brand is john lewis and they've they've been there since they came on board constantly saying what more can we do like and right now they're they're actually reviewing the on-site john lewis on-site journey to see how they can surface us more Amazing. so that that enthusiasm and engagement and dedication from our brands has been in that it's kept us it's kept me going actually and the relationships that you build with the brands and their the fact that they are genuinely trying to do better and trying to be more circular and it's not greenwash mm. particular well in, in this particular instance is amazing so that mm. that's helped and that's been good validation obviously none of it works without the consumer validation um something we've always done and something i learned from the first day of being a product manager is you've got to talk to customers. So obviously there's metrics, you know, there's like conversion rate and acquisition cost and, and those are, we, we monitor those like crazy, like weekly we're looking at our acquisition costs, our average order values, our churn rate, like our, our North Star is, is subscriber growth and now, you know, order growth on our resale side. Um, so we're constantly monitoring those things. But they don't mean anything without actually talking to customers to understand why. So why are people churning? Why are they churning less? Why are they, why are they converting? Why are they not converting? What took them so long? And I think we finally, finally got to a place where the team makeup works. We've got, we're well set up to understand what's going on, mm. to listen to our customers and, and to know what does and doesn't work. And since that point, you know, kind of kicked in a few months back, we've got an incredible customer service manager who's so passionate. She's our community manager and customer, and she's, she's really, really like obsessed with the customer. Amazing. Um, and our digital manager, similarly, like, you know, she wants to know what do they, what do they want to hear? Like, so listening always to what our customers are telling us and then watching what they're actually doing is, 
it's so critical. I love that. I think there could be more businesses that could stay closer to the front line that can actually speak to the customers. So great practical takeaway for listeners to bear in mind with their companies. Um, there's a theme here as well. You know, you've been kind of in the warehouse, packing orders, listening to customers. I love that you're still very much rolling up the sleeves. You get your hands it's dirty still. It's still a tiny still. company. And I think, I, you know, again, like I, I was reading a, um, a customer review because I'm doing my own social media and like a lot of small businesses do. And actually it's good because it makes you more authentic. But um, I was reading a review and it said, their customer service team really cares, unlike some big corporates. Mm. And I was like, of some other big corporates. Mm. And I was like, well, we're not a big corporate. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's why we are still a tiny company. So you can leverage that. You can yeah. use that to your, in, to your advantage, can't you? Yeah. All right, I've got a few more questions I want to try and squeeze in. So let's see what we can run through. Um, we've touched on the fact that you became a, a mum pre The Little Loop. You're now a mum of two. So I just wanted to touch on, like, I, I don't know how you do it to begin with. I don't know how just being a solo founder is bloody hard. We talk about the roller coaster. How do you do it as a mum of two little ones yeah. as well? I mean, I, I can be a solo ever? founder, <laughs> but I couldn't be a single parent. Yeah, wow. I, I think single parents are superhuman. Right. Um, I leverage my, like my husband and I genuinely do share everything. Like mm. he is, we had a big fight last night, so I, you know, but <laughs> every, every couple have big fights. Um, but he is fantastic. And, you know, we share all the jobs, we share the responsibility. I think still a lot of the mothering responsibility, like in most, you know, relationships and families does fall to me. But he does all the rest of the other stuff so that I can do that. Mm. So that's critical. Yeah. Um, we have childcare yeah. and it's so helpful. Since they've both been at school, mm. it's only been a week actually since the little one's been at school. <laughs> um, but you know again like all these things kind of kick in and make it easier um i do worry that you know my eldest does say things like mommy what are you working again you know we went on holiday we went to see my parents and we spent you know a week with them and then we went to lake district for five days and i had to work every day that we were with my parents and the the big one was like mommy you spent our whole holiday working now, it was only a couple of hours a day but i worry that they will feel that you know their perception of it is that I cared more about work than I do about them which is not true mm. um it makes me though break it makes me not work at weekends I don't generally work at weekends I work into the evening and I'll work late into the evening so that I can take my weekends and spend them with my family because yeah. it's so important that you're with them good but that's really good for your mental health as well yeah of course of course what suffers is you time right right going to the gym like I mean, look at my nails. I never get my nails. <laughs> oh, I don't have an excuse for my. <laughs> uh, I just had my hair cut for the first time, and I think it was eight months. Yeah. Like because you don't have a lot of time for you, and that's not brilliant. But you've got something's got to get. There's right. just so many hours in the day, aren't yeah. there? Yeah. And and my business is me time, and I yeah. I made that choice. Right. My choice was having this business. is It's quite an indulgent thing in some ways, mm. because I'm not earning yet. I'm hoping to now, soon, but therefore I'm relying on my husband. I am not present mentally as much as I should be. So actually that's quite an indulgence. Um, and some people spend that mental energy on what they look like and on what clothes they wear and on, 
you know, the health and fitness. I don't have that luxury, but I do plough that luxury into the business. So that's my choice. And I'm sure it will all be proved very, very worthwhile in the in the near future. So on that near future, you've launched a new side of the business. You briefly mm-hmm. mentioned before as well the, the resale. So you're moving, mm-hmm. you're adding the sell as well as the rental side of things. You've got some exciting things coming. So where, where's the little loop at now and what's coming up for you guys? Yeah. Well, we're riding, I mean, we're riding the... I suppose the storm of the of the of the macroeconomic climate, right? We're we're trying to weather out. That's a better analogy, isn't it? We're trying to weather out consumer spend reduction and lack of investment by making ourselves more resilient. Um, and also listening again, listening to the market, listening to customers. And what we know is that people love resale. They like secondhand clothing. Rent is growing, but it's not as obvious to sell to customers but we have all this stock that we need to resell anyway we have brand partnerships and we have tech so what we're doing is we're pivoting not actually we're not pivoting we're not getting rid of rental but we're shifting our focus and splitting it into also doing resale and we're building some really exciting tech where we will be able to integrate into brand into your online accounts with all of our brands import your clothing into our platform and then seamlessly resell it. So we're, we're trying to, and again, this is us always me, I suppose, always pushing the limits of what is already being done. Second hand's out there. There's loads of people doing second hand, but no one's tying it into the primary purchase journey yet. Mm. Second hand shouldn't be an afterthought mm. if you get around to it. Right. We should be being told from the day that we buy something, you can resell this. Right. I mean, Obviously, in an ideal world, we'd only buy a few things and we'd wear them forever. But we've also got to work with reality, right? And right, you might not put that on the page of some, some jeans because you should be keeping them. But ultimately, particularly with children's wear, it's going to come to the end of its wearable life with that child, but still have a wearable life with someone else. Mm. So what we're working with our brands on and with new brands on is when you buy something, you should be able to see how much you can resell it for right then and there. Amazing. So it could increase the conversion rate for starters, right. but also it's setting in the mind of the person buying it. Oh, well, of course I'll resell that. Mm. Of course I'll keep it moving and I won't just stick it in the back of the cupboard. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, we're launching it in stages. We're, uh, you know, launch, kind of improving our own resale site first, and then we're going to be towards the end of the year launching that hopefully with our brands. But we're already seeing really great response to us selling on our stock and to see it to resale, like our acquisition costs come right down. There's a lot of enthusiasm for it. So hopefully that will help us to weather the, you know, the climate that, yeah. that we're all facing at the moment and, and raise investment again early in the new year. But what I would also say is I don't think anyone can predict with certainty what might happen in the next six months to a year just mm. because of investment, you know, and every business needs investment to scale and grow and become something amazing. And we definitely will do. So, you know, in a year, I might, it, it might not be here. Mm. It, it, it might not be here. We can't, mm. I definitely can't say for definite that it will. Mm. Um, I will have learned a lot <laughs> and hopefully, you know, will have made people think differently. Um, but yeah, I don't know quite well, what's going to happen. I have a lot of faith. I know that the power of the founder themselves is one of the, the biggest asset of the business and completely believe in you as well. So if it doesn't work out, it would be for the right reasons. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. So uh, watch this space. Very exciting. Lots of cool stuff coming up. So last question that I always ask my guests is, this is called the Strategy and Tragedy podcast with the belief that sometimes the best lessons come from the biggest mistakes or the biggest tragedies. Again, I've mentioned a few times that there's been a lot, I know there's been a lot of horrible things that have come your way. Can you 
pinpoint any one of those um, that's really kind of taught you the best lesson? Obviously, we talked about the co-founder thing. So is there something else where you're like, well, I'm never doing that again? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because as you said, when I was saying, oh, well, I should have done things differently with the, with the co-founder, unless you had perfect hindsight, there's, you can't. And, and I don't think I would have done anything different. Well, I mean, I obviously wouldn't have worked with her, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but but is is there one thing that I could pinpoint that I would do differently? No, I don't think so. I think I think I've learned every single day on this job. I don't think there are many founders that know. Like, yeah, there are second time founders who say I've done it all before and I've seen it all and I'm going to be perfect this time round. But I think every single startup is different. Every single market is different. Every single like kind of macroeconomic climate is different. So. I don't think there's a founder who could honestly hand on heart say they don't go into the office and learn every day. And I think learn like all of those experiences kind of add up to be the sum total of who you and the business are. So without those, I don't think I would be as strong a business leader, not founder, but a, you know, I now feel confident to say I'm a CEO. When I started the business, I didn't. I was like, CEO? No. I don't know what I'm doing and I didn't and I still don't like know everything obviously and I'm not the CEO of Unilever right it's a different there's you know there are scales of it but I do feel confident to put that title next to my name now because of all the things that I've done over the last three and a bit years and um, so you should you're definitely better than most CEOs out there so well kudos to you <laughs> I don't know about that but, <laughs> but mistakes are important They're absolutely important. Charlotte thank you so so much for coming on I've been so looking forward to this time being sat down with you so you've been very generous I know you're a very busy woman so really really appreciate it thank, thank you, you so much and thank you so much to the listeners if you made it this far then thank you so much don't forget to hit that subscribe button obviously and uh Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you so much.